0: Welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. Yes, we've just seen The Post. Yes. Um, Which, I I was talking to my sister over the weekend, and she was saying, oh my God, I'm avoiding that, like, the plague. It's so, what is it, Uh, stinkingly, it seems so stinkingly earnest, or something like that. But she hadn't seen it. She hadn't seen it. So it's just kind of the impression, you know, that is given by the project Spielberg doing a serious project with Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep, who are arguably the most prestigious, you know, male and female actors of the day, you know, in this kind of important historical narrative mm. about just, how great America is in the First Amendment. You imagine, yes, and it, it, you know, it does it does feel so worthy and so on that. You know, I wasn't very eager to see it. Um, so, um, I'm very glad I saw it, though. I was eager to see
1: it, um, because it's Spielberg and Streep and Hanks, mm. and it looked interesting. And, you know, what can I say? I, I, I like the kind of thing. I mean, to be fair, I was also enormously eager to see Lincoln, because, you know, it was Spielberg and Daniel Day-Lewis doing a biopic of... The greatest president ever. So, it's like, this is going to be amazing. Of course, it turned out to be kind of dull. It was very dull. It was extremely dull. But I didn't very, dampen. That very didn't,
0: handsome to look
1: at. Yeah, but I didn't dampen uh, my enthusiasm for this. You know, I thought this is this is going to be proper
0: quality. You see, the thing about me, my relationship to Spielberg, is that I can't remember when was the last time I had a really good time at his movies. Catch me if you can um we have to skip that one because actually you know i've never been able to see it all the way through really yes how come um I, it's just one of those things i think kind of i missed it at the cinema i tried to watch it on tv i fell asleep you know mm-hmm. i tried again i'm a big fan of leonardo dicaprio right film yeah lots, and lots of bits on tv so but even, anyway even if you accept that that's the last time for you. That's, what, 15 years ago?
1: Well, no, I was suggesting that would be the last time for you. Because I'm just, oh. I mean, I've, I, I, I'm I, thrilled by pretty much everything I see of his, regardless. Uh, I, come on. I, no, yeah. I love it. I the love Bridge? I'm, Bridge of Spies? Yeah. I love that film. I think that's oh. a great little film. I know it's got its problems. It has the thing of how... I watched it again recently.
0: I know, you said you'd watch it 20 times or something absurd.
1: I watched it again recently to confirm how much I liked it. And it's true that I do like it. And but um, <laughs> there's, 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 there is that one bit in it where um, it's uh, there's there's the Russian spy who's in the American jail and there's the American spy who's in the Russian jail, and the American spy in the Russian jail is being treated badly and the walls are covered in dirt and he's being woken up in the morning and tortured blah blah and then it cuts to the Russian spy being kept in the American jail, and they say, Sir, we need to speak to you. And it's oh. like, oh, there's no fucking oh. way. I know. <laughs> they were that not. I mean... But there is... The, that, the construction of the plot and the, the way the scenes work and the way the camera moves, mm, that is an
0: exquisite film, Bridge of Spies. He's incredibly skilled. There's the no crash, crash is unparalleled. That's true. And actually, I think that's true of this film as well. Yeah. Um, you know... Kind of everything about it is really interesting, except its view of life and the culture and the country. <laughs> you know, everything seems shallow. Are you um, talking about this or British spies, both because I think okay. they both suffer from the same problems, really. Okay, uh, but I must
1: say that I saw this. So I saw this earlier than you did today because I had stuff to do. So I saw an earlier screening, and while you were seeing it just now, um, and I knew you were in the cinema, I was thinking to myself, I'm kind of jealous. That you're seeing. Like I, I want I already I wanted to see it again. Oh my God, okay.
0: Yeah. Uh it's not to say that I'm in love with it, but I wanted to see it let again. Let me put it this way. I liked it much more than Bridge of Spies. Uh and I think it's a very timely film. It's about the importance of the press, you know, and the press as a safeguard of, you know, democracy in the US and, you know, how the presidency is not the state. Uh, and you know, how to have the right to publish is to publish. If you don't publish, then you lose the right, right? And, you know, how um, democracy requires a free press, you know, which, um, yeah, I, th- I think is absolutely true. Um, the film is very timely in terms of Fox News and the Trump presidency. You know, we live in a situation where the press... Um, you know, deserves our support and our protection more than ever. And I think we're losing it, really. Uh, so so, so the film has all of those good things. Uh, and, you know... Yeah, and a lot of skill. And actually, for me, it's nostalgic. I mean, I remember kind of, you know, as a schoolchild going to the Montreal Star to get, uh, you know, to, to see how the press worked. And it was just like this with the molten lead... You know and all us kids got our names typed i think i actually have mine still in my desk mm. you know my name typed in molten lead as if it were like uh you know times new roman or something um and of course and then i worked in it you know as a typesetter for many years as a, just after after uni so so for me it, it also has all that romance and nostalgia of this idealized view of what newspapers should do you know, and kind of everybody in the newsroom trying to get the story and, you know, fighting the government. So, so, so I la- I liked it much more than Bridge of Spies, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but it still feels like a ni- a very old-fashioned 1940s film to me. I mean, there's a scene where I think it's Catherine Graham, They they come out of the courthouse, You know, they come through this crowd, and all the crowd looks worshipfully at her, right? And I thought, this is really out of a 1940s war film or something. That was something... Before we uh,
1: go on, uh, obviously, spoilers. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah, well, maybe we should talk about it quickly, because that's something I made note of, is when she comes out of the courtrooms, they've gone to the Supreme Court, um, because Nixon is basically trying to shut down the newspapers, uh, trying to publish the Pentagon Papers... Um, which means that the Washington Post and the New York Times, who have up up to this point been rivals, are now on the same side, mm. and they emerge from from the court having made their case, and uh, she emerges into this crowd of hippies, and the hippies are all women. I noticed. I, um oh. I, I mean, I, it's i mean, we had seen hippies of of both genders before, yeah, uh, hanging out and making speeches and singing songs. So um, there was something very deliberate about that. She emerges into a crowd of women. Because I don't think the film, up until this point, has hugely foregrounded the fact that
0: she is a woman in a world of men. It has. It
1: has. But it
0: hasn't, it's not its main focus. Actually, that's another thing that I really liked about this film. Because, you know, if you think about it... So on the one hand, you think, oh, it's a two-hander. You know, Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep. But it really isn't. You know, it's, it's Meryl Streep's film. Uh, And the issue of her being a woman and her being a publisher and what women's roles were and how they accepted them then, but Mm. they don't now. And actually, all the supporting characters that kind of feed onto her narrative, right? So, you know, so the assistant to the DA at the end who's working against the other side, but, you know, kind of thought, yeah. So actually, there's something that's being said about... You know the role of women and women being silenced. That's women, certainly true. But know. it's,
1: uh, it, it, well, I, I suppose, what I'm saying then at that point in the film when she when she walks through this crowd uh, of women is that it's very conspicuous at that point. It was to me. I noticed it, and I, I guess the film's saying something about how um, these 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 two kind of sets of people are different. You know, that one of them is a group of young hippies and the other is business people in suits yes. and courtrooms, but they're linked at this point, and they're mm-hmm. fighting for the same thing, and, and she, she's kind of accepted into this crowd by them. Um, and and it's, it's clearly tied to gender at this point. Like yes. a, like if, 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 the, if it were a male CEO or owner of the company, it wouldn't be the same. That's no, not at all.
0: And I think a lot is made out of her being a society woman. Uh, and, you know, so she wears Chanel to all the lunches and she's a very good hostess and, you know, kind of, she's fashionable in a conservative state way. I think, I think she wears Chanel suits throughout the first part. And then you see her at the end in like Pucci. Yeah. Like this kind of print, uh, uh, uh dress, uh, kind of more free and flowing at the end. Um, a little bit tie dye almost.
1: Yeah, well, It's not
0: tie-dye, but no. it more resembles
1: well, it's, that, that. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, and I remember, actually, because uh, I, you know, she was a very important society figure. She was very, very rich. Uh, as the film points out, she knew everybody, the Kennedys and the Johnsons and yeah. everybody. I remember reading about her because uh, for a while I was really into the Mithford sisters. I don't know if you know about the Mithford sisters. A little bit. Yeah, one was, you know, one went with the communists and the other one, you know, and became like a barnstorming kind of reporter. And then there was Nancy Mitford, who wrote these kind of very witty, romantic novels. And then there was Diana, who married Walter Mosley. yeah, The fascist. The fascist. Mm -hmm. So And Jessica Mitford, who was the one who became the rabble-rousing kind of reporter and so on, was, you know, great friends with uh, Catherine Graham. You know, and writes kind of extensively about kind of, you know, being received by her in Washington when she was like in America, you know, as a member of the Communist Party and so on. And they were great friends. Right. So, so uh, seemingly an open minded person. There is something that I have a problem with in the characterization of Catherine Graham,
1: which is that she is in her 60s, I guess. Yes. Um, well, she's a lady of slightly advanced years. Yes. Um, and she seems to be struggling to be competent at her job.
0: Um, ah, that's not the way I felt. You see, my feeling was that she is very competent at her job. She's struggling to assert her authority that her competence should grant
1: her. That's certainly true as well. But for, so she's she's basically pressured at the start of the film. That the film has this running thread of the papers going under um, business wise.
0: And they need to make an, a, an initial public offering to the stock exchange. Oh, well, that's not about the public going on. No, the stock exchange thing is separate. So they want to build the paper into a national paper. Well, there's and that, but it's also, they also talk about if if this if we don't do this, we're going to okay, have no, the paper But That's anymore. different. That's part of the narrative. So initially, they're putting out this stock offering to build the paper, but it has this clause. You know, that it could all be taken away if it's a, it's a catastrophe or something.
1: No, but they do talk about we are we are out of money and we need to do this in order to save the paper. It's not just about building it. They do want to make it into a national concern, but they do also make a big point of this stock offering is not just about growing it, it's about saving it. Oh, I miss that. They okay. do, I promise okay. you. Right. <laughs> but anyway, that, that's not the that's not the point. The point is just that they are going to they,
0: they are putting it on the stock exchange. And she ha- I thought I thought she was one of those, you know, uh um international super rich well this is not the story that the film is yeah. telling exactly
1: so the idea is that they're putting it on the stock exchange and she is fumbling over her notes and like she's, she's, she's um, uh, practiced the answers to the questions that will be asked of her mm-hmm. um, early in the film and then she stumbles over them later and she stumbles over the, the speech that she gives to the stock exchange when they uh, kind of all agree that they say welcome to the stock exchange and then she has to say a few words and she's nervous and bumbling, and um, and I and to the film's playing up that she is a fish out of water to the extent where I, where I was kind of thinking, How did she even make it this far? I think the film is overplaying it, yes. Um, you're right that it is, it is about her assertion of her ability to do a job but actually I think the film is that that comes across at least mm. as her inability to do a job at certain points and actually when she eventually says we're going to publish it's still done with this with this breaking voice of go, 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 go. let's go, let's go yes
0: you know oh, finding in, her voice as yes.
1: opposed to as opposed to just I'm in charge here
0: yes yes I don't know I kind of I found all of that quite good um, I mean you know the performances are wonderful Except to me that they're not. If you, so so let me clarify. I mean, you know, I think they're wonderful in the sense that they're rich. Um, you know, there's a really full characterization. You can see how skilled the people involved are. And that applies to both, you know, Hanks and Streep. Um, but neither of them, to me, you know, surprise or bring... Bring joy, you know. They're just like really skilled. Yeah. I know what you mean. Uh, so there's a kind of there isn't They're very staid, and actually, I hate, I hate this kind of, you know, um, worshipfulness of celebrity. Like you feel that, you know, there's something stultifying, and you know, uh, um, um, that takes life away. That too much appreciation takes life away from from performers, really, <laughs> that they suffer from, like, legend worship or something. And I think that's mm. that shows a bit in these performances of Hank's It
1: reminds Street. me of an article that I think you probably sent me a couple of years ago, which was about um, uh, famous actors performing on stage in New York and how, like, Jeff Goldblum mm. is in a play... And the moment he steps on stage, the play stops. Because yes. there's two minutes of applause. Yes. Just because he's shown up. Yes, there's, there, there seems to be a feeling of that. It's like, and now Meryl Streep. Yes. And now Tom Hanks. Yes. And you're never quite watching their characters. You're always watching their... They are Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. Not yes. Catherine Graham and Ben Bradley. And that's
0: right. Though, you know, I do think Streep is more successful at that. Yes. Just because you've seen her... Be so di- so different than so many recent roles. I mean, I absolutely love her, uh, Florence Foster Jenkins. Mm. You know, mm. I think she and Hugh Grant are terrific. You know, and just her singing makes you know I, it makes me laugh really. Like, uh, uh, but like bursts, you know, kind of. And and she's a comic genius in a way. I remember in that film, like every time she would change a note, it was like almost like Lubitsch where a, a laugh builds on top of a laugh and on top of a laugh just through the, her pitch, mm. you know. I thought she was fantastic in that. Um, and I'm not a fan, really. Yeah, you know, like, for many years I thought, well, she's not a real star because, you know, she doesn't bring people in. Like, people never... I, I don't think people, audiences warm to her until the devil wears Prada, right? Okay. Uh, and I have a theory that actually, you know, she wasn't in any hit where she was the central character all her big hits were you know with robert redford and out of africa or robert de niro and the deer hunter and you know woody allen or yeah that actually the films that were built just around her yeah like you know what's the one with um,
1: the sophie's choice kramer versus kramer
0: well, Kramer vs. Kramer was with Dustin Hoffman. I think, yeah, I suppose Sophie's Choice was her film, and it was, it was a, a hit, though not a big box office hit. It was a very big critical hit, uh, which that she, she, she managed always. But, you know, was it was like Cry in the Dark, really, where she's, again, she's, you know, magnificent, but so cold, right? And that made, like, two cents, basically, you mm-hmm. know? Um, so films like that, you know? Like, I think she had a whole run... Of 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 those films where I just I just think the audiences didn't warm up to her until she became middle aged (laughs) in The Devil Wears Prada, really. Yeah. So anyway, that's just my theory. I haven't, you know, I'd have to look up all her films and demonstrate
1: it. I think you might be right, to be honest. Um, I think you might be right, but then she got to Mamma Mia. And that's
0: the most important thing. Well, she then had so many hits where she was really the headlining star, you know, and they were all like uh, quite good. There's the, the film that she made about Julia Child, right? Julia and Julia. Yeah, Julia and Julia, you know, where really she's the show. And it was like, uh, yeah, and she carried it really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then there was that lovely film with Alec Baldwin about a middle-aged couple divorcing or because they can't have sex or something. And that was kind of lovely, and she carried that as well. And you know, those were yeah. those were really her hits. And really. of course, there was the Iron Lady, But she played Thatcher. I don't think that was a big box office hit, but but, but really, she, no, I, I don't think so. We'll find out, but but she, I thought she was magnificent. Well, I mean, it made one hundred fifteen million dollars on a
1: ten million dollar budget. That's a big hit.
0: <laughs>
1: um, yeah. yeah, there you go. I mean, she basically like her portrayal of Thatcher was kind of it was on lines of. Um,
0: uh, what's a face playing the queen? Helen Mirren. Helen Mirren. Yeah. Yeah. It's that no, kind of that's... level of identification. Okay, fair enough. You know. So by American standards, there was certainly you know that wouldn't be a big hit, right? Because that was that's international. It's not just yeah. Like you know, what did it do in the U.S. domestic?
1: Oh, I don't know. Give me a second. I was only looking at Wikipedia. Uh, two seconds. Uh, domestic was thirty million. Yeah, Foreign was eighty-four. Um, so that's still three times its budget yes I mean it's a film of a certain size like it's never going to make you know kind of Avengers know, money
0: but th- those things are complex because sure it's a film of a certain size with one of the biggest stars in the world yeah no I take your point uh, so okay. um, anyway uh, uh, I just find it interesting that in a way audiences really warmed to her she became truly a star Yeah, kind of, in my mind, when she became middle-aged, and actually when she played comedy and being middle-aged, really, you know, so they're two, and I think she's kept the the audience's affections ever since, uh, uh, you know, and there's a lot of goodwill uh, towards her, though, you know, she's got her detractors, um, but then so does everybody. Anyway, I think, I think she's, she's quite good in this, and she actually does paint a uh, you know, uh, depict or portray a rounded character. Mm. You do see the wheel, the wheel spinning. You know, mm. uh, the dresses, the intonations, the you know, the formal way that she speaks. Um, but anyway, I liked it. You know, yeah. So let's get on to more what you think because I'm sure you have um, more particular
1: things to say. I suppose the other thing to, to think about in terms of the, the the craft is that I just I adore Spielberg's direction and I, I love how he holds shots and, and the way he moves the camera to kind of keep everything interestingly or beautifully framed and he lets scenes run he lets the actors act yes. the, 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 the the scene in which you first uh, the, the scene in which Streep and Hanks first have a conversation is is over lunch um, so she's the proprietor he's the editor and they're discussing something they're discussing a range of things mm. Um and it's a really long scene. It, it's it's got to be a good three or four minutes, and it's a single take, the whole thing. And the camera just the camera moves to frame everything, and then it ultimately just parks um, with in, in this two shot. And you just get to see the actors act, and it's like it's it's actually quite theatrical. You get to see a whole. There are pauses, and then you know the conversation moves on, and this is all happening in one go. And I thought this is confident mm. and brilliant. Like there's there's, there's actually the kind of, the the, the steady hand controlling yes. this kind of yes. inspires confidence in you as an audience member.
0: Yes, I mean, the film is very assured. I mean, that was true of Bridge of Spies as well. You know, kind of, the way that he moves the camera is always like, you know, he's a genius at it and there's no other way of putting it. Um, but I think there are grounds for criticism. I mean, I think kind of, you know, to me the film isn't complex enough, really. And, you know, where I was saying that it's kind of designed you know, as a 1940s raise people's spirit kind of rah-rah film. I mean it, right? Like, the film is designed to get people pumped up over a free press. You know, and kind of leave people thinking that it's absolutely essential to American history and American health. Um, And I think a lot of things are compromised when, you know, that's your goal. You know, like... (laughs) <laughs> it's funny. I think I was actually expecting, especially given
1: uh, Lincoln, which was about kind of the the, the it was about the Thirteenth Amendment and the abolishment of slavery and the, the kind of the, the the will of a man to do something great and to to improve the American system. How great the American system kind of was. Um, I, I guess I was expecting something kind of similarly right-on. It was going to all be about the First Amendment, and the First Amendment is great. We must defend it, and we have to use it, uh, and and the system is what makes America great. The fact that we have this Constitution—that's kind of what I thought it would be. And there are certainly elements of that. There's particularly one very uh, cringy moment towards the end where they, the, everyone's in the uh, Washington Post offices, and the Supreme Court decision is coming through on whether they're allowed to publish it or not. Um, and the the girls on the phone, and everyone's listening, and she says it's six to three. We've got the decision. Everyone cheers, and then she recites, and hearing it over the phone, so she recites that she recites the, um, the 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 opinion of the judge who was in favour, and it's something along the lines of the First Amendment was designed for blah blah blah, and we must have the right. I think I might have written it down a little bit. Um, the press the, the press works for the governed, not the governing, or something yes. like that. And the strings are swelling underneath, and you go, Oh, yes. really? You're doing this? Yes. It's so over the, And there were a couple of moments... There's also one in the courtroom, just a few moments before, uh, where the girl who works for the government is leading Catherine Graham through to the room, and she stops and says, I know I work for the government, and my boss doesn't want me, yeah. want me to say this. I mentioned
0: that scene earlier. But, uh,
1: but she... But I want you to win.
0: Yeah, you know,
1: and then and then and then I thought mm, maybe, but because I thought actually that also that's not entirely awful because I think it really bears some relation to the Trump White House and how everyone in the Trump White House is speaking out about how much they hate it there. They can't stop the leaks, mm. and everyone inside hates it there and hates the the, the place they are. So I thought, you know, this isn't so bad. But then, but then, this young girl who's who said this is like berated by her boss disproportionately for doing nothing wrong, really. Yeah. And it's like, oh, really? how much do you want to play this up that like there are good guys and bad guys.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that was also meant to play up the connection of her as a woman in relation to to the street character. Yeah. But you know, th- there, there's too many emotional manipulations that are kind of unwarranted in a way that it's just a way of getting the audience head up for American values, and it feels like really conservative. So on the one hand, it's kind of doing something that I suppose might be seen as liberal at the moment, I kind of, you know, the press is in danger and he's standing up, this film is standing up for the value of the press, you know, especially at this kind of key historical moment that the film is dealing with. You know, but on the other hand, it feels like manipulative.
1: well what I was going to say is you clearly feel that way and what I was going to say is um, those two examples aside i don't actually think the film is doing very much of that and I think actually and this is what surprised me and pleasantly surprised me because I expected this fist pumping first amendment type thing and actually what I got was I, the the central characters at the New York at the um, at the Washington Post are the, their emotional tone isn't about, aren't we great because we're journalists and we have this... It, what their tone is, it's vile and it's hateful and it's, it's depressing and it's pessimistic because it's, what it's about is how much they loathe the government for the lies that they've told about Vietnam and how they've lied about it for 30 years. The, the, the Pentagon Papers go back to to Eisenhower and Truman um, and how they've been telling lies about Vietnam. And then there's this stat that comes up, which is which is from Robert McNamara, the, mm. the, the Defence Secretary, I think, something like that, um, who's a friend of of Catherine Graham's, and and he says, The reasons that we're in Vietnam are 10% to help the South Vietnamese, um, they're 20% to fight communism, and they're 70% to avoid humiliating defeat. So and she says in basically these words 70% of the boys that we sent to die there did so so that we could avoid humiliating defeat so that the president could avoid humiliating defeat right so and so the the tone is much more about the hatred of what the government specifically has done as opposed to how good it is that we can use a free press to expose it
0: well i i take your point i find that quite bracing well, I take your point, and I agree that that is one of the things that the film do uh, does. But I think it is also very idealized and romantic about the press, and actually in kind of cliché terms, right? They find the source, they call, you know, on secret phones. They go to a motel type place to pick up the documents in secret. You know, people work all through the night. You know, there's that cliché of you know making the press at the last minute, right? you know they don't get the papers delivered you know if they don't put the press the paper to, to, to press now you know it won't get to the delivery vans right so kind of you know those are that's all that's true too those are all kind of that's true too but i suppose I, I suppose that i
1: i mean you you are absolutely right about that they are it is full of clichés of that nature yeah um, and then, and also like the way that the way that the um, actual printing presses are shot and edited In this kind of exciting, dynamic way of the papers flying around and being sent up to the ceiling to the heavens. Yes, Um, I agree. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. I love that. Yeah, Yeah. I I like that too. (laughs) Actually, I did like. I mean, that moment, like you say, it's got that you know one minute to go till the presses, and then we decide we're going to publish, and they publish, Uh, and then you have this montage, this this action sequence Mm. of the paper running through the presses and being made into a newspaper. Yes, and it's the most exciting printing press I've ever seen in my life.
0: Well, you I haven't seen know. enough thirties.
1: Well, once. I know, but it's, been, it's properly, you know, it's like it really, really takes glory in the kind of mechanical process of it, um, and turns into this, to this, to this chase sequence almost. Um, but I get, but I, So, you're right that it's full of cliches. But I suppose I kind of ignored those, or I suppose I, ex, I expected them, so I didn't notice how cliched they were. Mm. What I noticed was the stuff that I wasn't expecting, which was, the, which was actually how. For a Spielberg film, particularly, it was so angry. Um, It really, it really felt anger, and I think, I think it's actually really pointed at the Trump administration because I think it is. I um, mean, I think without a doubt. uh, And I think that's where it comes from. So you have, you have these shots of Nixon, which are taken as if a spy is shooting them from a long lens outside Mm. the White House window, peeping in, and Trump, uh, (laughs) Trump, Nixon is his back is always to the camera, and he's Mm. always on the phone. And you hear—I don't know—are they real recordings? It feels like real recordings. They definitely feel like real recordings. Uh, I don't know if they are or not, but they—if they, they are—it just adds to it because he's he's complaining about about what's happening and who's going back on him and how the papers are getting these papers, the, the Pentagon Papers, and um, and and it, the film ends with the post publishing in its in, in the entirety, uh, and all the other newspapers publishing as well. And Nixon is on the phone over the closing moments of the film, saying. I don't want the Washington Post ever to be allowed into the White House again, or any of their photographers. Yes. Which is... I'm sure Trump has said something along those lines with the news, like literally banning news. Exactly, no, he has. So yes. it's, it's... It's very resonant. If, actually, if you've grown up, as I have, without Nixon... I didn't grow up in the Nixon years. I remember
0: his resignation on television. watching yeah. his resignation on television.
1: Um, well, I I I grew up in in you know the Clinton years, really Clinton and Bush. Um, so I didn't know Nixon, um, but I knew obviously kind of re- of his reputation. But what I didn't realise is just actually that that there is a precedent for this kind of thing mm-hmm. in the tr- it, when you hear Trump saying this shit about. Fake news and mm. about how these newspapers are awful, and he wants to ban them. And he's just done these fake news awards recently, which is very presidential. You think, God, this is just what the hell? This is not. And then you watch this. I watch this, and I realise there is a precedent for this. Well, the man. that I mean, Nixon. If Nixon there had is twit, no precedent for Trump, there's no precedent in <laughs> some respects. But in terms of. Uh, a president trying to use the power of the presidency and of the government to
0: take oh, down a newspaper. Lots of presidencies, yeah. yeah that that's why I didn't quite realize. And actually, the film the film shows you because you know, and they, it's just his personal anger about it. Well, they talk though about how Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson all manipulated the press, right? Um, but that was slightly different because when they talk about Eisenhower and and and
1: Kennedy, they talk about how they were in with the. Book publishers this is one of the this is one of the strands of the film where Catherine Graham who as you say has had a life where she's she's socialized with these mm. people and also so is Ben Bradley yes.
0: um,
1: they, they go back and forth at one point saying well you you wouldn't have uh, you didn't say anything bad about this yes. and she says well you didn't say anything bad about this because he was your friend as well
0: yes.
1: um, and part of the, the the thing of the film is we have to learn to put that aside Um. to in order to stand up for what we're supposed to be standing up for. Mm. Um, so the, the the way in which the, the, the government and the, the people in power have previously manipulated the press was by being their friends. Yes. Whereas with Nixon
0: on the phone, it's just vitriol and attack and I want yes. them shut down. Well, they mentioned Howard's enemies list. They mentioned Nixon's enemies list. Mm. You know, they say, well, how many people are on it? Oh, thousands. <laughs> right? Yeah. <okay. laughs> <laughs> and there's clearly a difference with Nixon. That the way they talk about him and they say, he is a dirty bastard and he's different. Yeah, he's yeah. vicious and nasty. But none of that stuff was public the way that the Trump stuff is. No, you're quite right. That yeah. That is true. Uh, it's not, it's, it is it is unprecedented in some respects, yeah. but not all of them. that's what I kind of realised watching this is... Yeah. Um, um, anyway and I also loved how you know the ending of the film it says oh my god I couldn't go through this again and then the film ends with the uh, robbery at the Watergate right so yeah it sets up a sequel yeah so <laughs> uh, it sets up all the president's men really yeah it does you know? um, so so I kind of like that
1: um, and also and, and I think the film uh, echoes all the president's men and generally 70s cinema uh, in a way as well which is the uh, there's the one character played by Bob Odenkirk, the one character played by Bob Odenkirk, who's one of the journalists mm. at, the, at The Post. Um, he has this... He's the character who goes to meet the whistleblower in the motel room and picks mm. up all the papers and takes them back on the plane. Um, and he has this uh, kind of plot of his own, which is... It's almost camp in how it's evoking 70s cinema. So, he, So he... he he thinks I know this guy and I reckon he knows something it turns out to be the whistleblower Um, someone rings him and he says I need to take this outside the office so he goes to a payphone because he reckons he might be bugged so he goes to a payphone and then he speaks on a payphone and says I'm looking for so and so and then he's given a different phone number he drops all this stuff he remembers the phone number goes to a different payphone on the same row rings up again so it's like it's all this spy stuff. It's real kind of seventies, mm. sort, of, sort of all the presidents men or um, the conversation type stuff. Yes. And it's it's almost camp in the way that it's evoking these things. It's kind of it's almost a parody, mm. but it's it's very lovely if it is like it's it's doing it right. And there's a, there's a, there's a zoom shot in on it, which is could not be more transparent in how it's mm. uh, in in the way it's doing it. Which I which I adored because it was it was funny. And it also showed it like, this is... It was, like, compartmentalising it. It was, like, saying, this is the subplot of the film where we're doing the 70s spy stuff, and the rest of it is slightly different.
0: But this is the All the President's Men type story in the film. You see, you're so clever, because I didn't notice any of that, actually. I was, I was really absorbed in the story. Yeah. You know, and I kind of... Um, it's only in the second viewing that kind of, you know, those things reveal themselves to me, really. So that's very good of you to point them out. Um,
1: yeah, I liked it. I mean, I th- basically, I found it entertaining. I thought it was very knowing. The film is so. I mean, it would be absurd for a film like this to not be uh, sort of having a metatextual conversation with all the president's men because that is the defining
0: yes. kind of Nixon and newspaper story. <laughs> yes. But you know, one of the things about having Bradley and Streep as protagonists, which I thought was kind of misjudged and, and middle-aged and stayed and, you know, is like, for example, you know, when, when Redford and uh, um, Hoffman did All the President's Men, they were in their 30s and actually they were probably a bit old, really. Like, you <laughs> know, a newsroom should be full of, like, young men hustling, right? Whereas kind of this, everybody seemed to be over 60.
1: Um,
0: yeah, I mean, it's, well, yes, that's what. I- I'm not going to pick
1: too many hairs about that. I think, yeah. I think you're about right about that. Maybe they are a bit too old, but who knows? I don't
0: know. <laughs> 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 well, it's easy to check, you know, what was the average age of, you know, kind of people working at the, at the Washington Post, you know, kind of. And you would expect them to be a bit older because, you know, they were like senior editors, senior editors yeah. you know, but kind of to have almost all of them be over 60s just a bit much, really.
1: There was a point in it where um, I think that it's the point where they've got the papers and they're trying to sort them out in Ben Bradley's house, and then this this uh, multi-person phone call starts up between Catherine Graham and Ben Bradley and the lawyer and the advisor and all these people end up on the phone together having this conversation about what we're going to do. We're going to publish mm. or not? And um, uh, there's a point in that where it, <laughs> the, the essential argument is: uh, Will we publish or won't we? And Ben Bradley says we we should, and the I can't remember who he is, but he's a lawyer or an advisor. He says yeah. we shouldn't. And it becomes quite heated. And Ben Bradley kind of shouts at one point, if we don't, Nixon wins. Yeah. And that those two words, Nixon wins, were. They kind of shocked me in a way. Because it was. I was surprised to see a film being so nakedly open about being against the president like the basic the president should be the guy who most people kind of agree with and want yeah. to represent them and to have to have a film basically saying we we are we have to be against the guy in charge completely like to a point where it's just it's a win lose scenario either nixon wins or we win mm. and it's it's that kind of 50-50 a, a fight mm. that was quite bracing i thought and again i thought that was that was uh, very much how people feel about trump And I think there's there's a thing. This is something that David Bordwell has written about before. The idea of strategic ambiguity, which is where films don't want to alienate potential sections of the audience, so they don't they don't go out of their way to make big political uh, sort of statements one way or the other, and they 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 practice ambiguity so that you can say, well, I saw in it this, and I saw in it that, Mm -hmm. which actually makes for worse art because I want to know what you think, really. I want to see. Something, a message conveyed and I was very surprised I suppose it's the level of it's vitriol now. Well, Yeah, I think it comes down to it's the level of vitriol against this stuff yeah. yes but I think it's also so clearly related to uh, what's happening today with Donald Trump and the newspapers and, 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 and fake news and the rest of it yeah. that I found it I mean it's not surprising that basically everyone agrees with that but I suppose I found it kind of surprising or just unexpected to Mm. to see it portrayed Mm. especially in a Spielberg film again I don't know why I have this thing about I don't expect Spielberg to do it but I don't know why that's
0: necessarily the case well because (laughs) his films haven't haven't to my knowledge actually except for uh, Schindler's List I can't think of another film of his that's been like overtly political the way this one is
1: I think you're right I think his films tend to Um, say instead of it being like left or right they tend to just say isn't America really
0: great or aren't dinosaurs great? Or, <laughs> oh, yes, you know, we really love 1930s adventure film. If they,
1: if they go for a political thing, though, yeah. it's, more, it's more the case of America is great and the system is great and the people are great. Yes. Never mind this left-right nonsense. Yes. We're all wonderful Americans. Yes.
0: yes. Whereas yes. this even, film is very even much... Even extraterrestrials are fine. <laughs> 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 Whereas in The
1: Post, what you get is some Americans uh, are great
0: and some Americans are really not so great yes. and need to be stopped. Yes. Bloody hell! It's taken him seven years to get. From. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad he did. Yeah, He's better at gremlins than he is at people. But I, uh, do, do you know what I mean? Though, like, I expected
1: it to be so much more anodyne than it is, and I'm very glad that it wasn't. Uh,
0: you're kinder to it than I am because I do think that there is something anodyne about it. Yeah, um, and something staid and conservative. You know, um, certainly cinematically it is. I also think the performances are somehow reined in. You know, there's just, there's just something, you know, um, competent and undynamic about them. It it feels to me like, you know, a film, I mean, I think my sister was right, you know, that there's a kind of, you know, sickening earnestness to it.
1: Hmm. I think there is up to a point, but like I say, I was glad, I was glad to see that that was tempered by many other things. Yes. It was, um, um, what yes. It, one thing it did make me think is... Um, it made me think about what films about Donald Trump's presidency are going to be like in 30 years' time. They're going to be farces.
0: <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> the
1: it's the first thing that's really made me think that, because I was thinking... Um, with Donald Trump, he does so much stuff and on a daily basis, he does things that any other president would be thrown out of office for. It's incredible. Yeah. And it's and you can't keep up with how outrageous and how frequently it happens. And so you can't... The fact that you can't predict tomorrow what's going to happen no. means that you can't even conceive of there being a future in 30 years' time. Um, and this was the first thing that made me think of, of this as kind of saying that we'll have a legacy. Mm. Right? What Trump's doing and how yes. how the world has changed and how the presidency is changing yes. under him. So, because, you know, at the time of Nixon, I guess things must have seemed reasonably similar and think, you wouldn't have never predicted how it would look 30 years hence.
0: Well, but you I certainly mean, I think, can't with Trump. I think there was a real... I think what's lost, which is a loss, is kind of a real belief in core values. You know, that kind of... You know, freedom and liberty and truth and... Like, I think re- people really did believe it. And, you know, and mm-hmm. I think the revelations of the Pentagon Papers, you know, and then Watergate were truly shocking. Yeah. You know, I even think Nixon's language was truly shocking, you know, like, you know, so there was a difference in which what these people might say in private. And obviously, you know, people in private were always more complex and, you know, and, and torn and bitter or whatever. And, you know, than they are... Yeah, but there was this idea that somehow... You know, it was only you or only those, yeah, that actually the culture was was healthy and free and true, and you know. So actually, the, you know, these were major revelations. But actually, what Trump represents is like like a perverted Jerry Lewis comedy of a culture, really. You know. Um. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I think I think that kind of. I mean, I've certainly heard people talk about how, people who grew up in. Uh, in that era, talk about a kind of loss of innocence, yes, and and how and hatred of Richard Nixon for what he did to, to, not only to people but to the post of the presidency. In
0: that I remember my dad snorting at me because you know I was such an idealist, really, you know, in uh, in the seventies, and you know he would snort that I could believe such stupid things, you know, because I kind of did, um, and I just thought that you know. He was just a victim of Franco. <laughs> yeah, like he never he never lived in a democracy, so he, he couldn't understand, you know, how those beliefs could be real. Yeah. You
1: know, that's <laughs> well, right. I mean, uh, it was like sort of that thing of uh, depressed people always expect the worst. So they're so in a in a catastrophe, they they handle it best because they're expecting the worst to happen anyway. Oh, that's and interesting. Something, there's, there's something like, and there's something like that going on in in sort of the way people become disillusioned by experience mm. which is why you know when people are young idealists and then they have their illusions shattered the old people are there going, yeah see we knew that
0: <laughs> <laughs> and like fuck off you shattered them <laughs> yeah pretty much my disappointment was you <laughs> <laughs> anyway any last words on the film um, no
1: I, I, I liked it and I'm glad I saw it and I would see it again it was very slow at the start, I must say. And actually, there was, it was just not quite what I thought it was. I, I thought it would be fairly conventional. We've, we've got our hands on these papers, what are we are going to do with them? But I didn't expect it to be um, that the New York Times had had, had them in part. Yes. And then we were, we were playing catch-up. The start of the film is about we're playing catch-up and, and what are we are going to do? And then it turns out we can get our hands on them too. And then it becomes a more conventional mm. uh, sort of political expose thriller after that. Yes. Um,
0: I I liked it much more than I expected to, actually. And I would recommend it. Um, There's no question about it. Um, And I liked the look of it. And it was never for one second boring. The story is really, really well told. Mm. Um, But I feel a bit sad for Spielberg because, you know, kind of... It's another one of those films that I certainly don't want to revisit. You know, there's nothing in it that makes me want to see it again. Okay. You know, um... I mean, I think that that he's a kind of genius craftsman that you know he moves the camera in a way like no one else, <laughs> and so on and so forth. I think we can all agree on. But actually, the question remains: to what ends?
1: Mm.
0: You know, and I think that's a question that overhangs Spielberg. And I think you know this is a question. That's a question that this film doesn't answer. I think
1: that's probably true. Um, it also suffers from
0: that thing. Which and this is a minor point really, but I always find
1: myself suffering from it. All these films about, about a load of white guys in rooms talking for a long, long time about about intricate matters, they always suffer from the thing of everyone looks the same and everyone sounds the same and everyone's got a name and everyone's got a different role and they're always significant and important and you have to know, and they take me so long to learn Everyone.
0: Yeah, I never bother. Everyone, <laughs> you know,
1: but I think that's it. Like, I don't think anyone does really. But the film still has like they're talking about what about Abe at the times and what about this guy Neil something. And I'm going, who are these people? Yeah. And when are you go to, pro-? I would like it if everyone had a name tag. It yes. gets you know, or just yes. if everyone introduced myself. Hi, I'm Neil, and now here's my part in the story. Yes.
0: Speaking, I mean, you just reminded me uh, that um, who I measure. Uh, Tom Hanks' performance uh, as Ben Bradley is Jason Jason Robards. Jason Robards, he's great. Yeah, who played him in All the President's Men? Uh, and I think he, Hanks doesn't bring anything of the abrasiveness and the roughness, and you know, kind of you got the feeling. Well, he brings Robards. A, he, he brings a gravelly voice. He's acting with his voice in this Tom Hanks, which is it. Yeah, but he's just. I love him. You know, and actually seeing him kind of cheers me up. You know, <laughs> and actually, I think that's kind of wrong for this part, really. <laughs> you know, it should be somebody gravelly voice and s- with a slightly dark edge, and you know, J.K. Simmons. It except, the, except that he already J. K., played. J.K. Simmons has a, a sleazy element. Yeah. <laughs> well, J- just dark. J.K.
1: <laughs> Simmons was the editor in uh, the editor of the paper in in Spider Man. Yes. So obviously, he wouldn't work because. He's, that's you, still his main thing yeah the other Ben Bradley uh, in cinema is um, Spotlight uh, Ben Bradley Jr is played by John Slattery who is editor of the Boston Globe uh-huh. it, isn't that interesting that is interesting and, 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 it, and again this is like every, every newspaper film for me pales in comparison to Spotlight which I think is just a masterpiece and what I love about Spotlight is how the people at the paper are culpable just as much as anyone.
0: Yes.
1: Because normally what happens in, in a film like this... And actually, it's not always newspapers. It's the film that made me realise this at first was Concussion, which was the film about um, the Nigerian doctor who... Uh, re, uh, chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy, I think, is a disease that he kind of discovered and gave a name to, which is basically uh, NFL players smashing into each other, their brains get irreparably mushed, damaged and yeah. small... Um, and he said he was the one who said this is a problem and we have to um, accept that, that, that this is not an accident. This is happening. So, and concussion is a perfectly decent kind of TV movie about that, mm-hmm. and it hits all the notes in order of what you should do about a kind of small guy taking on the big guy story. Mm-hmm. And um, and when I watched that, I realised everything about Spotlight that was unique and brilliant. And the central thing is that the people, the central thesis in Spotlight is. Uh, what the Stanley Tucci character says, which is, if it takes a town to raise a child, if it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to abuse one. And the, and the members of that village are not just the clergy, and they're not just the schools, and are not just the... It's the newspaper as well. Wow. The newspaper that overlooked everything. And And the central thing in Spotlight is, right up until the end, the guys working at the newspaper are saying, we're looking into this, and we're important, and you've got to stop now, because we're the Boston Globe. And they don't realise, even right up until the end, that they were part of the problem and yeah, they were so. covering it up too. And that's great. And this is saying, you know, this is not saying that this film does not that this is project, but obviously in this film, it's we're exposing the truth for all the right reasons, mm. and we're great.
0: Um, because my I'm... my idea of a great newspaper film is the front page, you know. <laughs> and I wanted some of the cynicism and darkness and humour and quickness and brightness and smartness, yeah, you know. Yeah, the zing, you know. Um, and you don't get any of that in the film. You want it to be more His Girl Friday?
1: Yeah. Pow, pow, you see? That's right. Yeah, well, the
0: front page is His Girl Friday, but, you know, with the gender role slightly changed, I did want the pow, pow, fast, quick, you know. Well, it's funny that you said... Bribe. You have, it's funny
1: that you said this was like a this evoked 40s film to you, because um, I think it kind of does, except you're right, without any of that speed or yeah. fizz... Or wit.
0: Yeah, yeah, no wits. It's and no sexiness whatsoever.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Zilch.
0: I don't know. It has got Michael
1: Stuhlbarg in it. Who's he? Very sexy man. Oh yeah, who's he? <laughs> he's, he's the um, he's, he's the one who plays Abe, the editor at the Times, the Jewish fella with the glasses. Right. He's great. He he was in he was in um... <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're big you're bigging yourself up is he also slightly overweight in his sexiness <laughs> slightly <laughs> uh,
1: he's um he, he was in uh, what's it the a serious man oh the Cohen film
0: yes I can't remember yeah.
1: He's very good. I'm slightly taking the piss there. He's not that sexy. Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> anyway, let's end it here, shall we?
1: And it's got Sarah Paulson in a very
0: underused role. Yes. Um, the
1: artist's wife. There seems to be something cliche about that, but I can't tell what. Well, it's a class thing. I don't I mind
0: that, really. Um, the, behind every great anyway, man is it's a quiet it's funny woman. because, you know, yesterday you were saying, oh, how interesting, this is not yesterday a few days ago you were saying this is a film that becomes more interesting to talk about than actually my experience of watching it and actually I feel the opposite about this one that actually I had a really good time watching it but actually the more I talk about it the less it seems
1: yeah that's interesting but I think you'll go back in the cinema and go oh I'm back in the 70s again
0: (laughs) 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 alright let's end it here (laughs)